welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. In this podcast, I have the pleasure of speaking with Professor Raphael Calvo from the Positive Computing Lab at the University of Sydney in Australia. Raphael describes a fascinating academic journey that spans physics, philosophy, computer science and cognitive and effective computing and moves from concerns about learning to concerns about mental health and well-being. He talks about his current work on positive computing and how technologies can support people's mental health and well-being. He also shares experiences and tips in managing his own mental health and well-being and gives some great practical examples. So um, I'd like to welcome my guest now, uh, Professor Raphael Calvo from University of Sydney. Welcome, Raphael. Thank you, Geraldine. Professor at University of Sydney, an ARC Future Fellow, and those who don't know the Australian system, that's a very prestigious senior-level fellowship that brings people, you know, key international researchers to Mm -hmm. Australia with five years funding? Four. Four, Four, yeah. And also director of the Positive Computing Lab and co-director of the Software Engineering Group. Can you just, just for context, can you tell us a little bit about where you've come from and how you got to here? So uh, I worked for many years in learning technologies, developing um, tools to help people learn about academic writing, about uh, STEM, science, technology, engineering and math, and different disciplines. Uh, my work until about six years ago was mostly focused on academic writing. Uh, then we were also looking at emotions, how uh, emotions can be used to help people learn better. Mm-hmm. Um, things like engagement, mm-hmm. confusion, um, different aspects of, mm-hmm. uh, of mental states. Mm-hmm. Um, and after working for a little while, or for a long while, on learning technologies and then on emotions, we uh, got more and more into mental health and well-being. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The idea is that the tools that we were building, for example, for academic writing, mm-hmm. allowed us to understand more about what people mm-hmm. think, mm-hmm. cognitive computing. Then we were working on the affective computing techniques that allow us to learn more about what people feel, mm-hmm. for example, when we give them feedback. Yeah. Uh, and, when you, and, and we have behavioral analytics tools nowadays that allow us to see how people behave. For example, when I give you feedback mm-hmm. and I say, thank you, Geraldine, for this fantastic interview, mm-hmm. uh, I can see different things. I can see a smile, I can see a bit of a blush, I can mm-hmm. see the nodding, mm-hmm. um, and that's the affective side. I can see how you will change your behavior in the second part of the interview after I made those comments. So, make you th- more I'm nervous. You've only just started. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So all those things, the emotional aspect, the yeah. behavioral aspect, the yeah. cognitive aspect, mm-hmm. actually form the three components of most psychotherapies. Mm-hmm. So psychotherapies like cognitive behavioral therapy are about linking those three aspects. Yeah. So the question is, if we can learn more about human, those three human constructs, why not use them for well-being? Mm-hmm. And that was the, at the core of our positive computing, yeah. we call it. 
um, discipline study the research and development of technologies that support mental health mm -hmm. and well-being. Mm -hmm. You've what was your first degree? Was it software engineering? No, uh -huh. uh, I studied my PhD was. Well, my master's degree in Argentina, you get a licenciado yeah. degree that is yeah. similar to a master's, yeah. was in physics. There was no computer science. Physics, there you go, yeah. yes. Uh, back there, I actually started, I wanted to study psychology, but my university, or most Argentinian universities, mm. only have psychoanalysis. Mm -hmm. So psychoanalysis is, is, the, is basically what they teach, the only thing yeah. they teach. Yeah. So I had to choose between Freud and Lacan, different schools teaching different authors, and I wasn't particularly interested mm -hmm. in either of them. Mm -hmm. Psychiatry was a no-no for me because I, don't, I have a problem with blood, <laughs> and, and you have to study medicine. So. Oh, yes, of course, yeah, so, before yeah. you specialize in psychiatry. Yeah, yeah. So, and then uh, I did physics and philosophy. And then uh, my dad is a physicist, mm -hmm. so maybe that, that was a motivation for that one. And so when I finished my master's degree for a series of very long things to explain, I didn't immediately go into uh, any PhD. Mm -hmm. I worked as a consultant. Mm -hmm. I, I had a number of jobs in IT. Yeah. And then I wanted to start computer science and the university started offering a computer science degree. Now, this is particularly interesting. If I understand correctly, your blog is for young academics. Um, I think it's actually for all of us. For all of yeah, us. Okay. Because, yeah. So the serendipity of life there was that I couldn't get my PhD scholarship mm -hmm. because I was not born in Argentina. So I finished my master's, and I always had planned to get a PhD scholarship and mm -hmm. do my PhD, follow academic life. That was my plan. Mm -hmm. But then when I went to apply for the scholarship, they said, but you're not Argentinian by birth. No, mm -hmm. I didn't have an Argentinian passport. I had never even thought about it because I felt Argentinian. Yeah. I was living there. Yeah. So. Um, so that forced me to look for a job in something else. And in a way, it was one of the best things could ever happen to yeah. me. It was fantastic. Yeah. So I worked in other things for maybe four or five years. Mm. Eventually the law changed and I was able to become properly Argentinian. Mm -hmm. It was because I didn't want to do the military service. I right, yeah, yeah. So when they removed the mandatory yeah. military service, I became Argentinian and I got a scholarship through the World Bank. And my degree was still going to be physics again, mm -hmm. but the research was going to be machine learning. Right. So I went to Australia for the first time, then Carnegie Mellon. Yeah. I spent about yeah. half of the time in yeah. each place. Yeah, that's it of our PhD. I worked as a consultant as yeah. after a while and, and I came back to Australia as an yeah. academic. I just think it's really interesting, the, the journey that, mm. that you've gone through from, you know, and, and that you've always had this mix of interests and passions, you know, the sort of wanting to do psychology but ending up in physics, but combining the physics with philosophy and doing a PhD in machine learning and the way that you've brought those interests back together in doing those sort of tools for academic writing um, yeah. and, and connecting with the affective part of it. Yeah, when I explain this to people, sometimes they seem disconnected, but believe me, there yeah. is a very strong thread in yeah. the middle yeah. um, that is not obvious to, to everyone. Yeah. And I have learned now to accept 
that there are certain things that happen inside our yeah. mind that for yeah. other people are not easy yeah. to understand. But if yeah. you can see the connection, that's yeah. that's what matters. And and somehow it's always sort of connected back to what you what you seem to have known in your in your sort of core yes, as what you really cared about. Yes. Mm. Yeah. 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 Because yeah. if I look back. I, I've gone in circles, yeah. no, like I wanted to study psychology but yeah. I couldn't because yeah. of circumstances. Yeah. That was fun because and circumstances ended up being working out pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. And now I'm back somewhere between computer science yeah. and psychology. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. Amazing. So you have, a, you have a book that you published um, called Positive Computing Technology for Wellbeing and Human Potential. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's been, it appears to have been extremely well received, you know, I, um, reported on Washington Post and Forbes and all sorts of different venues. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to, can you just tell us a little bit about it? Like, well, what is the core message of that book? So, engineers, we have been developing software or technologies in general yeah. to improve productivity. Mm-hmm. Uh, productivity has always played a starring role, mm-hmm. no? we, yeah. and that's possibly because productivity is easy to design for. Yes, uh, we can and, measure. And measure. Yeah. And measure. Yeah. Um, but we haven't thought of really about the longer-term impact, mm. the impact it has on people's well-being, on mm. in people's mental states. Mm-hmm. So we build email. Yeah, it makes us more productive, and I often ask this in, in lectures and so on. Yeah. And how many people feel that email makes you more productive? Now it's changing because this goes in cycle. Mm. But until recently, mm. everybody will say yes. Mm. But most people will also now say that it stresses them out. Yeah. Yeah. So you're losing productivity, yeah. uh, but you're also stressed. Yeah. Um, and there are ways that we can change that. Mm. You know, technologies can be designed to promote certain behaviors. And there are certain behaviors that stress us or have more negative impact mm-hmm. on our well-being than others. Mm-hmm. So I think it's uh, our responsibility, in fact, to start designing. So at least we don't hinder people's yeah. mental health yeah. and well-being. Do you have a specific example just to illustrate that? Uh, well, yeah, we have many. Um, there's a lot of evidence yeah. that when I praise someone, and I'm mm-hmm. honest, mm-hmm. like today, Francisco's paper, uh, the Francisco's yeah. uh, your student yeah. and your paper, yes. was fantastic, Great. was amazing, really excellent work. And when I really mean it, yeah. obviously, yeah. you're going to feel well, yeah. very well, uh, as you should. Thank you. And Francisco, yes. as well. Yes. It was very good work, and if people praise you, but that goes both ways. Mm-hmm. So when I'm praising someone, the benefits mm-hmm. of praising, obviously, is to the recipient. Mm-hmm. That's the one that we always think about. But psychologists have shown that it also benefits me. Yes. Is this picking up on some of that gratitude work as yes, well? Yes, there is a lot of work on, yeah. on showing gratitude and yeah. the benefits yeah. of showing gratitude. Now, take LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. LinkedIn is a platform for connecting people mm-hmm. in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can endorse someone. So it has a, a, a component that you could say is about gratitude. Mm-hmm. But it's so efficient that I can go and endorse you on 10 skills and it takes me a fraction of a second. Yeah. So the benefits, psychological benefits, yeah. are lost. Yes. On, on your side, because 
you know, it does, it's not very meaningful. Yes, no. Uh, I have been endorsed for Microsoft Word. What does that even mean? No, like, on the other hand, you can design that or you can design like Microsoft Jammer. Mm-hmm. Jammer requires that you write a sentence mm-hmm. explaining why you are uh, endorsing or mm-hmm. expressing gratitude mm-hmm. or congratulating someone mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. You have to write a sentence. Those 10 seconds that take you to write a sentence mm-hmm. completely change the equation from yeah. the psychological yeah. perspective. Because you, you're putting effort. Yes. It's a meaningful communication. Yeah. Uh, meaningful communications have shown to have an impact on positive well-being. Mm-hmm. The other one is more almost like content consumption. Uh, there's fantastic work that has been presented here in CHI that shows that, for example, in Facebook, the use uh, of Facebook, you can't say Facebook is good or bad. No. It depends on how you use yes. it. Um, if you're just going to consume content, that's not as, uh, as good for your well-being as if you connect meaningfully mm-hmm. with people. Mm-hmm. So if you use it for directed communication, mm-hmm. then it has mm-hmm. a positive impact. Those more are so two examples. Just, more so than just liking. So yes, liking exactly. is sort that's of the right. equivalent of the endorsement. Yeah, right? exactly. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we are designing to promote either of those two mm-hmm. behaviors. Mm-hmm. See? So those are mm. examples in which the designers were thinking about productivity yes. only. Yeah. Um, if they ch- we change their mindset yeah. so they can start looking at the other factors, yeah. how can you develop, I don't know, a Fitbit yeah. that uses proper motivational psychology? Yeah. Uh, so something that feels intrinsic. Yeah. If you are designing for the elderly, mm. that's something mm-hmm. I have, has been on my mind quite mm. a bit. How can we design tools for the elderly that keep their sense of agency, yes. their sense of self-respect, yes. the sense of... Yeah. Uh, today, it's very easy for us engineers to develop technologies that take over people's agency. And I know. I know. It's, and I don't think we appreciate often the power we have in shaping not just sort of, you know, experiences of the interface, user experiences, but quality of life in very deep and meaningful ways with deep impacts. And there's a, there's a book on the Springer Stand, um, Designing Socially Embedded Technologies or something, edited by Volker Wolfentin. And we have a chapter in it exactly about designing for older people and designing for agency and reciprocity and, and sort of reimagining these telecare agendas rather than just taking a more functional and, you know, you know, productivity type approach of, you know, we'll monitor you and make sure you don't fall over and save the healthcare system money. And thinking about the quality of life for people. So you never ended up doing sort of a formal degree in psychology. And one of the challenges that we've, because we also really try to engage with um, theories of psychology as relevant and really think about how we might interpret them. But we often struggle with, you know, the theory is great and makes sense, but how do we operationalise it into system design, you know, decisions that we have to make? How do you go about sort of identifying the theories and then thinking about their design, you know, what they mean for design? I work with amazing psychologists. Yeah. I, I think that's what you need to, yeah. we need to do. We need yeah. to get better at working interdisciplinary yeah. with, uh, and respect so yes. that means working in a partnership. Um, computer scientists all too often uh, feel that psychology is not a hard science mm. or uh, if you can't measure, you shouldn't believe in mm-hmm. it. 
um, I think psychologists can contribute. So it goes both ways. Yes, Many it, psychologists yes, also don't believe yeah. in our work. Yeah. Um, but if you find the right partners, and I have been quite lucky with that, yeah. you uh, they compensate, compensate for the things yeah. that you don't know. Yeah. But there's still, you know, there's still that sort of translational step. Mm. Is that done in dialogue with them? Like really sort of saying, yes, the theory says, you know, I don't know, a readiness to change stage, but how do we identify that practically through our systems? Or you know, how do you... So in all the projects I have, I, I work with at least one psychologist. Mm -hmm. I haven't had ever a project where I didn't. Yeah. Um, and, and I rely on them. Having said that, I spend half of my time reading papers from yes. psychology yeah. or technically or psychologically oriented yeah. technical journals. Yeah. Um, so I keep... Yeah. Um, with the literature, yeah. and I have read enough background for many years. Yeah. So, but even so, I still feel the need to work with psychologists. Yeah. So I do know enough of psychology that where I can go and find my way around yeah. and yeah. read any psychology yeah. paper. But I depend on them. Yeah. So respecting what each of the disciplines can bring to the to creating sort of solutions that work for people and contribute exactly. quality of life. I think it's a respect between the, the disciplines, yeah. and then increasingly I'm spending time in participatory design mm -hmm. activities mm -hmm. where users mm -hmm. become part of the equation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Especially in the mental health domain, I think. Ag because agency is such a big issue, mm. the only way to uh, understand the difficulties they face is to spend time with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. But, um, and, and it also puts, raises more new challenges, of mm. course, and it changes the nature of the work we do mm. a little bit. Um, slows down sometimes mm -hmm. the research mm -hmm. because you get in ethics approval and yeah. that kind of thing. It uh, takes time. And when I talk, talk with some of my computer science colleagues who do just purely machine learning algorithms, mm. Mm. It, it's a different process mm. because yeah. for them, you, the data doesn't matter where it comes from and then they taste the algorithms and when they find a good algorithm, they can test the same yes. thing on yes. multiple data sets yeah. and here, every problem is different, and yeah. um, so, yes. But they're the real-world, messy, complex, everyday life problems. Yes. From um, a personal point of view, that's more satisfying. For some people, I understand that the other one is more satisfying. Yeah, indeed. And that's part of the respecting you know, everyone's contribution and exactly. everyone's sort of following their yeah. passions. And I'm working a lot with uh, clinical psychologists who mm -hmm. themselves spend a lot of time with patients. Yeah. So they have a good yeah. understanding of the personal aspect yeah. of mental illness. Yeah. So you clearly have some very deep knowledge and expertise around mental health and health and well-being and quality of life. And you're also an, an academic and a busy academic in sort of a you know, major, major university in Australia. How does your academic life play out? What have been the challenges in looking after your own mental health and well-being? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, 
think we are always challenged. Yes. Um, I to give you an example. Last year, I have four or four and a half, five trips. Because it depends on how you count the first one in January. Each of about two and a half weeks, and so that added up about two and a half months overseas, where I was not with my kids. I have two kids, mm-hmm. seven and ten year old. Mm-hmm. It was way too much. Mm-hmm. So I said, I'm not doing that. And by mm-hmm. the time I finished, I was like, uh, so I have hypotension, mm-hmm. low blood pressure, blood heart rate. Blood pressure. So okay. I was having, um, you know, health problems. Uh-huh. And so I said, mm-hmm. I have to slow down. Mm-hmm. And luckily this year, and they found the right medication. Mm-hmm. So um, much better. But it, it was important to make the decision, I'm not going to travel this much. Uh-huh. So listen to your body. Listen clearly, to your like body. Yeah. 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 Listen to your wife <laughs> and your kids. Yeah. And uh, yeah. um, just learn to say no. Mm-hmm. So I'm increasingly saying no to mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. I'm not as good as I should be, mm-hmm. maybe, mm-hmm. but I definitely am saying no to many, many mm-hmm. things. So how do you decide what to say, what things to say no to, and what things to say yes to? Um, for the first time in my life, I have begun to just have to delete emails, for example, that people say, asking for favors, and I'm saying, sorry, I can't. I have email, Gmail, that's a, it has an automatic thing. For example, they need, if I cannot take students, an email that says, sorry, I'm not taking any student. So I can, you know, automate a little bit the responses for saying no to things. I cannot review this paper, I cannot... Because in a way, and sometimes they get offended. I had people yeah. being offended because I couldn't be part of their project or a mm-hmm. center or something. Mm-hmm. But um, on the other hand, they will get more offended if I said yes and then I could not contribute anything. Yeah, that's a good point, isn't it? Uh, or and, and beyond offense, I have mm. to think about myself. Mm. So, yeah. so in saying no to that, you're saying yes to you. Yes. I mean, which is an important sort of deciding what those relative... Yeah. So I'm saying no mostly to things that are very administrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think universities have the tendency to behave like companies sometimes, yeah. trying to reduce cost. Yeah. Yeah. And they are giving more work to academics, yeah. work that is not by nature academic. Yeah. Um, and it's very, very... That's why I struggle most yeah. in just saying, this is not academic work. I'm not doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm sure you still do some... You know, it's not like you don't do any admin work. Oh, no, I do so much. Yeah. Yes, so, I mean, uh, it's... Yes. Uh, but I'm trying to do admin work yeah. where I'm actually contributing something that other nice. people could not contribute to. Yeah, that's, a ni- that's, a, that's another really nice point, isn't it? doing something that other people can't contribute and then yeah. there might be other jobs that other people can contribute to and where it can actually be beneficial for them for their CV or... Exactly, yes. Yeah. Once you start thinking about it that way, a whole world of opportunities for yeah. early career researchers yeah. just happens because yeah. you have to be... Uh, you want to edit a journal yeah. or a workshop yeah. like we did here and we look for opportunities for younger people to, yeah. to contribute nice. um, you, you have a bit less of work uh, but, and you also sh- share mm. uh, part of the creative mm. work 
Um, so it's sort of a win-win. Yes, if we I think, think so. about it in those terms. Like yeah. that. I could imagine though some people saying it's okay for you because you're at the very senior level and you're a full professor and you can say no. I'm uh, on pre-tenure and you know, I can't say no. Hmm. It's a hard question. I, I'm not sure what you do when you have... Um, because you want to be an academic. Mm. Uh, but if you say no, you think your career could be put at risk. Mm. Funnily enough, I think that we exaggerate mm. that. Okay, yeah. Uh, the problem, uh, the reason I'm being so careful in saying this yeah. is because there is a 10% chance yeah. that your head of school yeah. is being serious. Yeah. Right? Uh, but there's a 90% chance that if you explain, sorry, mm. I can't because mm. I'm already mm. overworked, yeah. your head of school will understand. Of course, there is always a 10% of heads yeah. of schools yeah. who just cannot empathize, yeah. uh, but that's not the majority. And maybe even getting their buy-in to say, I could be interested in doing this, but you know, can you help me look at what else is on my plate to sort of see how we can fit it in or what I could lose to enable to do this? So there could be ways of perhaps engaging in that discussion. sort of discussion. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. one way um, people and that one can think about it is saying, okay, yeah, I'm happy to do it, but what, what do you take from yeah, my yeah. Um, list of yeah. things to do? Yeah. Uh, and there's always, in every school, every university, there will be activities that are not in the workload formula. Yeah. Uh, so we have to have that discussion. Yeah. Where in the workflow formula yeah. is, for example, that yeah. I'm supervising 15 undergraduate students? Yeah. So, yeah. And heads of school have to understand it. Yeah. Because on the other hand, they, they could be hiring more people. Yeah. Uh, or at least fighting or yeah. arguing to the dean or yeah. whoever is above, saying we need more staff because... Mm. Um, There's some point where we recognize what our own limits are and stop absorbing the pressure. And yeah. Well, Europe and Australia actually are in advantage of other countries mm -hmm. because legislation mm -hmm. is that if you are mentally injured, like if you could show that there is certain mm -hmm. mental illness yeah. uh, caused by your workplace, yeah. uh, it's a concern. It, it's something that you could, I think in some countries, and don't mm -hmm. quote me on this, mm -hmm. but you can take them to court. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, um, in disciplines, maybe in software, nothing mm. can really happen. Mm. If, if I'm too tired, I'm just yeah. I fall asleep yeah. on the keyboard. Yeah. But in other disciplines, yeah. if I'm too tired, if I have not slept, yeah. uh, and I have an accident, yeah. Yeah. it's not my fault, it's my employer's mm. fault. Mm. It's interesting to look at. Do you have any other sort of very practical ways that you know, your intellectual engagement with mental health and well-being, sort of from a research point of view, has played out or influenced changes that you've made for yourself? Uh, I try to look for opportunities where I don't have technology. Mm -hmm. So my phone is not allowed in my bedroom. Um, that's a simple one. Yeah. Uh, because otherwise I, Love that. I, I am addictive. Yeah. I pull out the phone first thing in the morning. Yeah. So when I'm traveling alone, yeah. I'm not as careful with that. Yeah. Also, I'm in a room, in a hotel room, so my yeah. phone, yeah. <laughs> I don't have you another room. Leave I can't it out in the corridor. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So the first thing I do when I get up is check my email. Yeah. Uh, at home, I don't do that. 
having said that, I've been trying to change my behavior so I don't read my email at all in the morning. Mm. Uh, but I find that one I'm struggling with that one. Okay. Because my role nowadays, so I use uh, Rescue Time. That is an application to mm -hmm. see what you're working on. Mm. Um, and it tracks every minute that yeah. you spend on yeah. the browser, on yeah. Gmail, or... Yeah. And I spend 30% of my time, I spend three hours a day doing email. Wow, so, to have that quantified but that's in my, that way. That's my job. Yeah, so it sounds a lot of time. It's a lot of time, mm. but on the other hand, I say, well, it's my job. Mm. Right? Yeah. It's like... Yeah. I, and that's even with doing the trick that you said before. Exactly. About I, I'm already as efficient. Yeah. I think I'm as efficient yeah. as it gets. Yeah. Uh, but I'm still spending yeah. hours doing yeah. email. Yeah. Nothing. The only thing I can do with that is just put a block of time, trying to do it on a block of time so yeah. the disruption is minimal. Yeah. And that is something that I, I personally struggle with. Yes. Like I would like to, like for example, just refocus in the morning and not do anything. Yeah. I do better, but... Yeah. And because the research shows that if you're consistently working for two hours without interruptions, you're so much more productive yeah. than if you do two hours with yeah. 10 interruptions in the middle. Yeah. Um, you, if all of us mm. can probably see mm -hmm. that in, in our own mm -hmm. life. Yeah. Um, but, well, reality sometimes doesn't yeah. make it easy. But the principle of trying to create those spaces where we can have, you know, even if it's not exactly two hours, but we can have the, you know, a decent block of time that's uninterrupted and making choices about yeah. you know, uh, not allowing interruptions. To Another happen. trick mm -hmm. that I think some ACI mm -hmm. researchers somewhere in mm -hmm. should study this is the physical device aspect. So. Mm -hmm. I don't use the iPad for work. Mm -hmm. uh, so there has to be, there's a, there's a, we make a mental construct about yeah. a device. Yeah. This device is for yeah. entertainment, this yeah. device is for work. Yeah. When you get the two overlap, mm -hmm. um, trouble. Okay. Yeah, that means trouble. So blur. It, it blurs the line the, even yeah. more. Because yeah. you are there, you're watching a movie. Yeah. Uh, your partner might go to, out yeah. and then you flip, oh, let's see what's on the email. Yep. And, and then your brain is already in work. Yeah. Now. Good tips. So. Good tips. <laughs> but they're really good tricks because they're, they're very sort of practical, deliberate strategies just yeah. to create some boundaries or to, you know... Um, we have another one that is more a family aspect yeah. or it's yeah. the same, same concept yeah. is we don't have a physical TV. Ooh. We have a data projector. Yeah. So in order to, we watch, nowadays we don't watch any yeah. TV, we yeah. watch shows from Netflix yeah. or uh, streaming yeah. um, ABC in Australia. And so when we want to see a movie, mm -hmm. we turn on the data mm -hmm. projector. Mm -hmm. That has an amazing and incredible mm -hmm. psychological mm -hmm. impact because you don't see the device. Yeah. In fact, the data projector we have, it's, it's called, a, it's a pretty cool technology now that it, you put it against the wall, yeah. And it just makes a huge screen, like two meters by yeah. very, very yeah. big screen, bigger than yeah. any TV screen. Yeah. But it's against the wall, so yeah. you hardly yeah. even see it. Yeah. So that connects with something I saw here at this Kai conference where I think it could have been Anna Cox's work and her students, and I apologize if it was someone else, but I think they called it frictions. So putting in those sort of, mm. where there's that extra step of effort to do something that really helps sort of 
break the automaticity of just going and flicking on the TV as you walk yeah. past it. And the, I, I, I see the same sort of thing in your strategy with not bringing your phone to, you know, into the bedroom that is, creates an extra step if you did want to do it. You have to get up and go outside and get it. Uh, there is that aspect. Mm -hmm. um, I know Anna's work on uh, design frictions, but no, this one is more, I think, I an idea where... Where the physical objects, where the digital yeah. where the technology is, has a meaning for us. We associate a mm -hmm. utility to mm -hmm. it. So it's better if those utilities mm -hmm. don't get confused, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like in our case, work-life yeah. balance. Yeah. If it's the same device, yeah. the two things get together, and that's yeah. where the balance is more yeah. easily broken. Yeah. Um, the, the design friction there could be and I have tried this one, but it, so in the laptop, mm -hmm. you can have two accounts. Mm -hmm. You can have Rafa at work yep. and Rafa at home. Yep. Okay? And I have to switch. That will be the design friction right. because okay. I, I, and I, I do use that one actually. So it yeah. didn't work with the two yeah. accounts, but I do yeah. have two email accounts. Yeah. I have my personal email account, that's where my family writes, that's where I have my Facebook, mm -hmm. all the, mm -hmm. I, I also get all the spam there. Mm -hmm. And then I have my work. <laughs> account yeah and I don't meet them yeah great so I'm just conscious of our time I always mm -hmm. end up taking much longer than I expect it's always so okay. much so interesting talking to people and I could talk for much much longer but um just before we finish two things so one is is there anything sort of finally that you want to say and second is do you want to sort of point people to uh, a URL where they can sort of see information about the book and also you mentioned before we started about a lovely video series that you're starting Yes, um, many of these ideas about designing for well-being are in our blog. That is positivecomputing.org, mm -hmm. positivecomputing.org. And in the blog we have um, studies about um, these type of issues. And we just started a, a series of video interviews with uh, leaders both in industry and academia on the relationships between technology and well-being. So, for example, the first person we had was Brad Fell. That is one of the top 20 venture capitalists in the world. And he has been the founder of Fitbit and like a hundred different companies. And uh, well, his experiences with technology and mental health. The next one is uh, um, Sonia Lyubomirsky, who is a very famous positive psychologist. And then we have uh, yeah, a series of people coming. Excellent. And I look forward to seeing those as well. So thank you very much for your time. It's been really great talking. And you've given me lots to think about and sort of uh, try experimenting with to see how they fit in my life. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more, you can subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes. And you can follow Change ACAD Life on Twitter. You can also go to the website www.changingacademiclife.com.